So, Bob, we have a number of emails to answer from trainees. There's a bunch of students and interns that have questions for us cool. and, and early therapists. What do you say, Bob? I say, this is good. This is, the, this is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Hanna. I'm a therapist and a professor. Who are you, Bob? Uh, I'm Bob Gettle. I'm a therapist in practice in Seattle and married to Colleen. <laughs> By the but, way, I looked her name up. Yeah. Because of the last episode you and me taped, um, taped, listen to me, um, you were saying everybody ought to have a Colleen, so I looked up her name. It actually means girl. Everybody ought to have girl. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know if it's really true, but yeah. I thought that was kind of fun. That's funny. Isn't yeah. it like British or something of it's some Irish. sort? Irish. Yeah. Irish. Patron Hannah from Slovenia says, I'm currently starting my own psychotherapeutic work here in Slovenia. Your videos, deep dives, and podcasts have, have been a huge impact and help with that. I'm working with clients and also writing my master's thesis at the moment. As an awfully and overly self-critical person, which I am dealing with in my own therapy process, I want my thesis to be about self-critical therapists. How self-criticism impacts psychotherapists at the start of their career. I would love to hear your opinions on self-criticism and ways to be more compassionate to oneself and Bob's opinions are amazing. I think he is amazing. Thank Bob, you. what do you think? Be amazing now. I am now peeing my pants. <laughs> so the person is wanting is interested in therapists having problems with confidence and self criticism. Yeah. And that they have a distorted view of self. Well oh, yeah. yeah. Personal counseling, it's a great way to learn about yourself. Um so I'm for that and you know, as everybody knows, I've been in therapy forever. <laughs> Um, can can I share a? I'm embarrassed to say the following. Uh oh, I drifted and I didn't hear a lot of what was in the email. Can we can we read it again? That's fine. I mean, it, it, that's all that really it is. Is I'm writing a thesis on self critical therapists, and because I feel self critical. Okay. Uh, what are your opinions on self criticism and how to be more compassionate to yourself? Right. I I'm glad you're doing that. I hope that what it the the fruit that it bears is that it helps you feel less self-critical. Um I just had a session with a couple last night and um at the end of the session one of the people in the couple was upset with me about something I did. And um expressed that to me, let me know very directly. And I could feel my heart rate go up and the whole thing and and I said, you know what? You're 100% right. I I did exactly that thing. And I did it because, you know, here's why I, I did it. And it's still not, that doesn't make it okay. I'm not saying it's okay, but this is what's going on for me in this moment. And, um, you know, I really appreciate your feedback, which I do actually really appreciate his feedback. But then the session ended and I went on the business of the rest of my evening or whatever. And I was reflecting on it and I was feeling really, 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 really bad about it. And then I stepped back and I'm like, Bob, that was a good session. Like, that was a tough moment. But when you screw up and you recognize it and you own it and you say you're sorry, et cetera, because I think that actually did happen. I screwed up. You're modeling something really useful, particularly for a couple if they've been engaged uh, in if there's been a lot of conflict and there's a lot of hard feelings between them. So modeling that kind of humility and um, acceptance of the other is useful. Great. But that was just two minutes of an hour-long session. And right. the rest of the session went really, really well. And I noticed in me a reluctance to keep that in mind and to keep it in perspective. 
I'd say that's probably my biggest problem when it comes to self-criticism is that I'm apt to dist- Oh, it's that Paul Simon song. You know that song, Something So Right? No. Everybody listen to that song, Something So Right. Paul Simon, great songwriter. When something goes wrong, I'm the first to admit it. I'm the first one to admit it and the last one to know. When something goes right, it's likely to lose me. It's apt to elude me. It's such an unusual sight. Can't get used to something so right. Hey, I did that. That's actually the lines. Yeah. Um, I have that struggle in life. I think that the safe place is to be critical. Like, that's what I know. That's what I'm used to is to be self-critical because um, that's safe for me. And it may have its roots in the functional, um, the, the function of shame. Shame is really functional emotion when you're a child, when you grow up in a situation that is um, problematic, maybe because of abuse or neglect or, you know, the various things that happen. If the problem is me, that's far more easy to tolerate because I can change me. I can try to do me a better job. I can do me a better job and make things better for mom or dad or whoever, right? But if the problem is you and you're, you're dangerous, you're scary... Living in that terror is far, far harder. So shame is a really great emotion. It's really adaptive when you have no power and when you're dependent on the other. Right. The problem with that is, though, of course, is that everything that we learn in kidhood we bring into adulthood. And, you know, (laughs) my normal is that sort of thing. So I'm vulnerable to that. And what I've noticed in the last year or so is two things. One is a certain amount of differentiation where I am not my mistakes. And that's not the sum total to me. And I don't need everybody to like me. Now, I have moments that are that are like that, that are differentiated. And, and then I have, just like everybody to some degree or other, but maybe more to a greater degree for me, um, moments when I do, I fall into my shame spiral and I'm uh, vulnerable to getting stuck in um, that kind of thinking. I'd say less than I used to. Um, and so... Uh, I guess the other thought I have is keep at it. You're probably going to chip away. Yeah. If you're anything like me, you're going to end up chipping away at it. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, just a side note. Do you ever do that in therapy where you weren't tracking? You were sort of daydreaming for a second and you just say, so I'm sorry. I just, I, I sort of checked out there for 30 seconds. Can you repeat what you said? you ever say that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Often I'll say, wait a minute, can you say that again? I'm not sure I quite got it. Sometimes it's because I actually didn't quite get it. I was like, well, what are they saying? I don't quite follow. And sometimes it's because my brain leaves. I will say, yeah, I left. Sorry. Yeah. 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 I mean, in the eight hour day of being a therapist, it's normal to occasionally just have a moment where your focus just Mm -hmm. leaves someone for a second. Sometimes it's, you're thinking about them. they're, They're like, oh, I'm talking about my mom. And you start right. thinking about the client's mom, and you're like, "Wait, I'm not listening." Right. Uh, so, uh, it's a wonderful uh, ad- admission to make, which is, "I'm sorry. I you're, you're going to have to back up and and uh, tell me what you've been saying for the past thirty seconds because I, I was thinking about your mom." Right. So, tell me that again. Uh, yes. Much more important than uh, sort of soldiering on and giving mm. the impression that you're that you were listening, and then the client's thinking, "I don't think my client's actually, or I don't think my therapist is actually listening." Mm-hmm. But anyway. Yeah, self-criticism is a universal aspect of therapists, particularly just starting out. Mm -hmm. Uh, As Bob was talking about, shame is a big part of that. We all have trauma around shame. There's also a possibility of not having a safe mentor that you can talk to. This is extremely Mm -hmm. important when Mm -hmm. we're trying to uh, modulate our self-criticism. Also, some people don't don't have support from peers. There's nothing better than getting together with your peers 
and voicing your self-criticism and having them all say, oh my God, me too. And then it, it just instantly dissipates 90% of it. Mm-hmm. So, and this goes for any aspect of life, you know, for me as a podcaster, as a therapist, as a professor, when I open up and allow the messiness to be and not give in to my shame and I just say, boy, am I screwing up right now or boy, am I upset about something and it just dissipates 90% of it and because we, we know that it's irrational to be ashamed, but there's nothing better than experience of airing your dirty laundry and having someone say, yep, been there too. Mm-hmm. Uh, because we're what we're convinced of in the self-criticism shame spiral is that people will run away in horror when they hear what we did. <laughs> and that almost never happens. So uh, if anything, people are like, oh, my God, thank you for saying that. You know, me too. The other part of being a therapist is just part of the job. It's too complicated to be good at first. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of trainees are used to being very good at things. Mm-hmm. They're used to being proficient, at least after a little bit of time. You can be a therapist for five years and still feel like you're barely getting by. It's normal. Therapy is way too complicated. And I both lament and love that because as a therapist mm-hmm. myself, it is still challenging. I'm still mm-hmm. struggling. I'm still, you know, one of the most, and this is actually a Piaget thing, that we revel as humans on the precipice of failure. We, uh, children do this all the time. You know, when they stand up to walk, <laughs> Bob just hit, hit his microphone. Uh, when we stand up to walk and we're taking our first steps, we don't know if we're going to make it. We don't know if we're going to fall and hurt ourselves. And when we manage to make those first steps, we're elated as as humans. Usually we're just like, oh, my God, you know, I'm doing this. I, I feel a similar thing when I'm performing music. And this is one of the things about like really famous musicians when they don't want to play their famous hits because for me and the and my bandmates it's always this way when we actually are writing a new song and we play it usually in practice for the first few times that's the most elation we'll ever feel because we're on the verge and often kind of screwing up a little bit once we really nail the song and we're like you know it's two years later and we've played it dozens of times it's no longer as fun uh, there's fun to it, but and there's fun in in being competent, but um, playing an easy song is much less enjoyable than playing a difficult one, but kind of succeeding. And so, um, anyway, being being a therapist uh, is so anyway. That's why I love being a therapist is because it's it's so complicated. And part of the and a consequence of that is in the beginning of your career you're just overwhelmed with just how incredibly complicated it is. I mean, I remember early career, I every session I felt like I was just winging it. And there were moments when I felt like I kind of discovered something and I would write on this little post-it note some little wisdom and I'd be like, oh, therapy is about blank. And I would post it on my wall in my office at my agency and you know, inevitably a week later, I'd look at it and I would have no idea what it meant. Um, and it would elude me because I, I, I by, by writing those post-it notes, I was trying to hold on to the wisdoms that I was discovering as a foundation for I know what I'm doing. And it would quickly leave me. And the other thing is, is that 
for me anyway, there was a real lack of positive outcomes in the beginning of my career that were being reported to me or lack of feedback anyway. I remember at the end of my internship, there was a question at school of like, you know, identify a client that you successfully treated. And I actually had a hard time coming up with someone legitimately. One, because clients are complicated. (laughs) Two, because I probably wasn't that good of a therapist back then. And three, because not all clients will tell you when things are going well. And so, um, so what I have done to sort of cope with self with uh, this self criticism is one is humility, being okay not to be perfect, being okay with the messiness. You know, I you notice when I talk about my goal in life, I I never say I want to change the world. What I say is I want to try to change the world. <laughs> I never say I want to make the world a better place. I want to say I want to try to make the world a better place. It was a totally different mindset. It's it's different to me because if I never manage to make the world a better place, that is independent of my goal. My mission in life is to try. That and and when if I have tried as a therapist, as a podcaster, and I can that I can say I did try. <laughs> I don't know if I succeeded, but I tried and that is my goal. If you hang your hat as a therapist on, I must see positive outcomes that are very obvious in my clients, then you might be disappointed, at least in the beginning of your career. Not necessarily. The other thing is, is to focus on good feedback when it comes. You know, I have two large letters framed on my wall. I blew them up, written from clients telling me that I was helpful. And these are from the first year or two of, of being a therapist. Hmm. I have them on my wall. They're the biggest things on my wall in my office because I need that, particularly in the beginning of my career. And the other thing, of course, is having mentors. Hmm. You need a mentor to that you trust and respect telling you, no, you are, you're good. I can tell. And if you are a mentor out there, make sure you identify that. I When I see um, uh, trainees... You know, I just had a trainee uh, that I gave some public praise to, and she reached out to me, and she's just like, I can't tell you how helpful that was to me. And she comes across as a really confident, professional person, but she was telling me, like, how how much she valued me publicly talking about her in that way. Hmm. And... That's important. You know, I've had I've had mentees come up to me years later and they'll say like there was this one thing you said to me. Um like there's this one former student of mine who came up to me not too long ago and she's like I was planning, I was contemplating becoming a specialist in I think sexuality or something. And I went to some other professors and you know, they heard me, but when I went to you, you, the first thing you said to me was, oh my God, you're going to be so good at that. And I just want to thank you. That really stuck with me as motivating, as validating, and I really soaked that up. And from my standpoint, I was just saying what I believe or, you know, it, you, you forget how much mentees need to hear stuff like that. And so if you can legitimately honestly say stuff like that you know tell people it's important anyway listener grace says what are your best tips on new counselors who are remaining differentiated during sessions what are your new tips for new counselors 
for remaining differentiated during sessions. I'm a, about a year away from graduating from with my master's in clinical mental health counseling. You speak a lot about remaining differentiated as a counselor during sessions, and I was wondering what you would recommend as counselors begin at the beginning of their career. As I get closer, I have some anxiety about making sure that I am the best counselor I can be. Bob, what do you think? Yeah, that sounds about typical. We want to graduate and be the best counselor we can be, and we're focused on that. When I was in graduate school, I read somewhere that for the first five years of your career, what you're going to do is you're going to spend your time and energy trying to perfect something about counseling technique, and that's just part of the learning curve. Okay, so you're probably going to do that. You want to remain differentiated? Talk about it when you're not, because you won't be. You're going to fall into countertransference again and again and again and again and again, and then some more. And that's okay. That's just par for the course. So um, keep talking about it. Keep talking about it. Make sure you've got a good supervisor or a good consult team that you feel safe that you can be open with. Um, if you're in a consult team and you can't be safe, you don't feel safe to be open, then it's not really a consult team anymore. It's a performance thing. <laughs> Anyways, uh, not that I know anything about that. Hmm. Um, um, so the goal, okay, an understandable and admirable goal and let yourself fail. I think the, it's kind of like what Kirk said, the, it's the effort that is the outcome that I seek, not the outcome. So right. I want to make the world a better place or I want to try to make the world a better place. My value is in my effort. What finds purpose, what finds meaning for me is in my effort, not necessarily in what actually happens in the world. Maybe it gets a little better. Maybe it doesn't. Who knows? Um, that's a pretty big question. Right. So, so uh, supervision. Supervision, 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 supervision. Yeah. That's, that's what I would do. Yeah. The only thing I'll add to that is differentiation for me is facilitated when in the moment as a therapist, I, I just take a second to self-reflect really mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to say, what am I feeling? What are my impulses? What are my urges right now? What kind of rut am I in? If I'm in a rut, What's going on? You know, just checking in with yourself. One of the uh, sort of poisons to one's differentiation as a therapist is to constantly focus on your clients. Mm -hmm. So being able to occasionally real quick, and it's a matter of practice makes perfect. You eventually, you know, by the time Bob and I get to the stage of our career right now, we can check in with ourselves, whether with clients or not, in like half a second because mm -hmm. it, it's such a habit. And uh, so... Because that's, you know, you don't have the luxury of saying, okay, client, will you pause for the next five minutes? I'm going to, I'm going to journal about what's happening right now. Yeah. Like you don't have that ability. Usually you have to be able to do it real quick, which means you have to do it all the time. And through supervision, through therapy, through self-exploration, you learn different themes to your reactivity that you can immediately recognize by just a slight twinge in your gut or something like, <laughs> like you just feel like, Ooh, there's that thing. I, I know what that means that, cause I've explored that in such detail that I don't have to stop and think about it. I know what that means. Um, listener Meredith from Wisconsin says, I tend to tear up when I hear others emotional stories at ball games. I bite my tongue when the anthem plays because it's so powerful and my emotions overwhelm me and I almost cry. When my neighbor's dog died, I was in tears just hearing the story. Weddings are powerful things. I'm usually biting my tongue to keep the tears at bay. Is there a tool I can use to keep my emotions in check? Am I a bad fit to go to school to be a therapist, or will I become desensitized enough through the process to not be a distraction to the patient 
Bob, what do you think? It isn't necessary to not have tears. Um, I worked in a clinic once, a research clinic, where they would code therapists for um, their basically their how they were doing their job and how they were um, providing therapy. And one of the things that they would upgrade people on would be radical genuineness. How radically genuine! And one thing about tears is that they're often a, a, just a, a deep, immediate, spontaneous expression of how I feel in this moment while I'm sitting with this person and can be a very powerful validating tool. When I'm having tears about somebody else's pain, I invite them to perhaps explore or no, sorry, perhaps experience their own pain when maybe, at least for some of us, um, that hasn't been available. You live in a culture that has this kind of weird relationship to crying, like we think it's wrong or bad and we think sadness is a bad emotion. I saw that. Do you see that movie? Um, uh, Lord of the Rings, the last one, the last Lord of the Rings film. The, yeah, Return of the, the King. King, right? There's this um, moment where Gandalf is saying to one of the hobbits, not all tears are bad. It makes me crazy because no tears are bad. Right. <laughs> tears are just tears. It's like not all laughter is bad. Well, laughter is just laughter, you know. Right. Frowning is just frowning, you know. Um, blushing is just blushing. So tears are just tears. Um they can be very validating. I'm not sure why you bite your tongue when you um, listen, hear the national anthem at a ball game, or why you bite your tongue when you're at a wedding. I have yeah. tears, but every time I go, every time I go to a wedding, I cry. Yeah. I love that. Actually, I I love feeling sad. It tells me I'm alive. It tells me I have a heart. I still have compassion. So, I often shed tears with my clients. Um, and I have no problem about that. I often do the following, too. I often will explore what is the meaning of this for my client. It can be quite a, it can at times be overwhelming, but I can't presume it's overwhelming, but it can be overwhelming. And I've had clients tell me, Bob, you're too effusive. And I'm like, okay, right, right. I'll turn the light down a little bit. That's fine. But um, I can't, I don't think that it, it's a wise thing or, or a, an accurate thing to presume that um, that my tears in front of a client are bad or wrong. I could be modeling appropriate, appropriate. I hate that word. It could be modeling, you know, just normal grief. Yeah. Or. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. My thoughts. Exactly. I get it. I'm kind of the same way. I cry at the drop of a hat. Yeah. Anthems, commercials that have an inspirational upwelling of music, pretty much every movie, every, Every beat that a director is wanting me to cry, I'm crying. And Sucker. and I get it. You know, there are times when I'm watching a movie in a movie theater and I want to sob. My body wants to sob and I, I'm trying to hold it back. Mm. And why? You know, I, is embarrassment. I don't want to bother the people. I, I get it. it it's, but it's completely irrational. And in this, you know, Bob said it well, it's, you don't hold back at a when you're at a comedy event like a stand-up comic you don't hold back laughter from embarrassment you laugh that's how that's what you're supposed to do it's normal and if you're feeling it's nostalgic or you feel sad for someone crying is the normal response and you know i i i we frequently talk about this and someone will email and say you know i get that it's not normal to be stigmatized but it is stigmatized and some people really don't like it and yeah i get that but at least with clients 
what a wonderful model that you can provide as someone who's just like, you know, and I'm crying because I'm moved by what you said. Mm-hmm. Uh, what a wonderful gift you can give your clients. I've uh, The only situations where I've heard it go awry is when the therapist makes it about them. You mm-hmm. know, they start crying. They're just like, oh, my gosh, da, da, da. you know. Just keep the focus on the client. Just be like, I'm crying because of what you told me. Yeah. And I feel bad for you. Tell me more. Mm-hmm. And, you know, don't be don't be afraid of my tears. I'm not afraid of your tears, and you don't need to be afraid of mine. And crying is normal. Mm-hmm. And I'm having a normal human reaction. What you don't want to do is say, oh, my God, this reminds me of my mom. Let me tell you mm-hmm. about my mom. That That's the only time it's a problem. And if you don't do that, which I'm guessing you won't, then you're actually doing wonderful therapy and this notion that... And literally in no book does it say you cannot cry in front of your clients. But somehow everyone considers that... I, I've Continually, I'll have trainees say, well, I know you're not supposed to cry in front of your clients. And I'm like, where did you get that? Like, they just I assume it or some terrible professor told them that or, call, you know... That's, there's no data on that. There's no passage in a book that says you can't cry in front of a client. It's just assumed, and it's because of our stupid, stupid, broken-ass culture. Anyway, let's take a break and get back, and we'll read more emails. What do you say, Bob? Yes. All right, we're back from the break. Upper tier patron Molly from Oklahoma says, Do therapists ever get frustrated with their clients? I am a nurse on an inpatient psychiatric unit, and I confess that there are times I've been frustrated with my patients. I've been hurt physically by patients before. I've been threatened by them. Mm-hmm. I've witnessed several suicide attempts that required me to intervene by starting CPR, etc. Mm. These things make me feel worn out and frustrated at times, as much as I hate to admit it. And I wonder sometimes if my therapist ever feels that way as he is treating clients outpatient-wise, including me. Am I comparing apples to oranges, or does some of the countertransference still exist in both areas? Bob, what do you think? Uh, it makes sense that you'd um, feel pretty frustrated, given, especially given the things that you just described happening to you at work, on a semi-regular basis at least. Um, who wouldn't? That's just a normal response. Um, apples to oranges, kind of interesting. I'm not sure that... Um, whatever's happening in your personal counseling would um, rise to the level of tension and terror that goes when somebody's assaulting you or when they're you're providing CPR because they tried to kill themselves. I doubt anything that intense is happening. But does your therapist get frustrated with you? He might or she might. They might. Mine gets frustrated with me. I really actually liked it the other day he said it. <laughs> actually, he didn't say he was frustrated. He said he was bored. And... uh um, um, that was useful to me. That was like, what was useful about it was a, to know it B to C cause I know what he's talking about and I know what he's responding to in me. And it's like, uh, um, um, what do you call it? Avoidance. Short, shorthand. Yeah. Shorthand way to let me know that he's noticing my avoidance. And I hear it that way. And, and then I appreciate it also because, um, I'm not thrown by it. I don't need him to feel entertained by me all the damn time in order to think that I'm safe in our relationship. So if he's bored, yeah, he's bored. Who wouldn't be? And we're still cool. And I guess at that point, it's up to me. Do I want to, do I want to do the thing that would unbore him? Is that important to me? Do I want to do the thing that would be unavoidant? That's probably what I want. That was what I wanted that day. Um, so, uh, and I want to point out that I think the reason why you go there to that place of, 
oh, I probably should go to a place that's less avoidant. Yes. It's because you feel tremendously safe with him and you know that he cares about you and you're not there to perform for him. You yeah, know, exactly. that, you established that in the relationship and that's why you went there. If it was a different relationship, you might have actually felt, oh, I'm unsafe. I need to start performing. Yes, exactly right. Yeah. And that's actually the point of therapy is to do things that um, make me feel unsafe that actually aren't dangerous or that are safe. Right. So, yeah, for me, that's all part of the work together. Um, so, so, but um, frustration with clients is like a normal thing. It's sort of like having tears, right? It's just a normal human response to um, um, other other people's behavior, other people's interactions with us. You're not immune to that nor should you be and it's yeah. a source of information and also it can be a source of growth if it's handled properly which doesn't mean suck it up handled properly might mean giving feedback this is the impact you have had on me now i don't want to say you should tell the person who um assaulted you at work this is the impact that you had on me i think you should be mindful and planful about that because what you don't want to do is you don't want to make it about you you are there to treat that person but their treatment but what's useful for them in their treatment might be to know something about the impact that they had on you, that you're a real life human who was bruised by when they swung at you or whatever. Um, Cause um, maybe that's a behavior they want to change. Yeah, absolutely. The only thing I'll add to that is, is it apples and oranges? Yeah. In my mind, uh, I would not equate the work that you're doing with the work that I'm doing. Yeah. Uh, at no point am I worried that clients are going to hit me or, uh, try to attempt suicide right before my eyes. I'm going to have to perform CPR on them or they're going to assault me or push me down the stairs or something like, like there's, that's a completely, I feel so safe when I am talking to my clients. Have I felt unsafe at times? Yeah. Beginning of my career, I worked with some clients that actually, I actually needed to physically re restrain some mm -hmm. clients in the beginning of my career, but that's, com that's just completely different work. And, uh, so there's that. The other thing is, is yeah, as Bob is saying, you're going to get frustrated with your clients. If you're not, there's something wrong with you. Honestly, you're not, you're not invested. Uh, a therapist who doesn't feel at least some frustration with every client they worked with is not doing a good enough job. Um, there's something deeply wrong with a therapist that isn't frustrated occasionally, because at the very least you care and clients run into their schemas and you will get frustrated with them because you're just like, oh my God, like you're doing it to yourself. So if you don't get frustrated, you don't care. Uh, and that's just okay. I mean, that that's just passion. That's just, you care enough. Um, the other thing to point out is compassion fatigue, which I believe you're suffering from, mm -hmm. which is when you, it sounds like when you entered the field, you really cared and you really wanted to care. But eventually when you, when you are burnt out and you have too much, you've literally been traumatized by the way. Like I, I worry about our people that are, is there, is HR providing like therapy for you for having gone through some incredibly difficult experiences? I'm guessing not because often they don't at least sufficiently. And to go to work and without having been given space, a vacation, you know, like this, this sort of stuff just drives me crazy is, so, you know, someone is at work and a patient and an inpatient assaults them. Okay, it's not very common. It, it's actually, it's talked about, but it's actually pretty rare, but it can happen. And a patient assaults one of the workers there. 
that worker is expected to just continue working that day and the next day. It's possible that that person needs like a couple weeks to, to process the trauma. They're essentially being sent right back into the context of which is very scary to them. And that can compound. And the, one of the first things that will happen is you'll just stop having compassion. Because why would you have compassion for a context that's abusive to you? Mm-hmm. So it's a matter of worker rights and acknowledgement of human emotions and trauma responses mm-hmm. and how much someone can handle. And so uh, that's my thoughts about that. Right then. Patron Brenna from San Francisco Bay Area says, I have been seeing a therapist through my insurance at Kaiser because I, because they're the most affordable because I have Kaiser Permanente insurance. I have had pretty bad experience with insurance appointed therapists, though. Have you heard of this? Is this a common experience? I really hate my therapist mm. and my insurance only allows one session a month. Mm-hmm. I get a pretty bad I get pretty bad anxiety when I'm about to go on my video appointment with my therapist. Wow, listen to that. I get pretty bad anxiety when I'm about to talk with my therapist because mm-hmm. she doesn't seem interested in my life or anything I have to say. Mm-hmm. And she gives me really unhelpful advice. Mm-hmm. Should I risk going through the same pain and try a new therapist through my insurance or should I go through private pay? What do you think, Bob? Um, I think you might. Be, you might benefit from telling your therapist that you don't think that she's interested in what you have to say. And it sounds like you have a complaint about not just your experience while you're in session, but also the infrequency of your sessions in general. Um, you believe that this is not sufficient for your goals. And um, I don't know that the folks at Kaiser Permanente will be responsive to you. Um, they might not be. I, I know that with managed care companies, they are in the balance. They're in the business of running a business and um, that can um, run at cross purposes to um, the goals of, well, the, at least the, the stated goal of, the, of healthcare is to provide care for people's health. But healthcare is also an industry and a business and one that um, there's a lot of money associated with it. And people like money and they want to make money and earn money and grow money, et cetera, et cetera. And so, yeah. and just to chime in, one of the ways they make money is to lower costs, which is to deny people service services. Now I know somebody who worked at the, um, the organization here in Seattle way back when that was like Kaiser Permanente, who was group, an intern. Was, it's group health. Group health. Yeah. yeah group, group health became Kaiser in Seattle. In Seattle. Yeah. They got bought. Um, and what they, so I had two experiences with that. One is I went to a therapist there and was unhappy with it. Um, and the other thing I, I I know is that the the sessions, the in-house reference to sessions was that there was an intake and then following that were checkbacks. Checkbacks. <laughs> I'm going to check back in. I'm checking back in with my client. I'm checking back in with my, I'm checking back in. Like what's supposed to happen is supposed to take place outside the office. And we just sort of check, ba- check back with one another um, in between to like, it's almost like saying the dentist said to me, fill your own cavity um, and I'll check back with you to see how that went. Right. I, I, right. I don't get it. So, yeah, yeah. so you're in a managed care health system. Should you seek counseling somewhere else? If money was no object, I would. Yeah. Yeah. The only thing I'll add to that is my own experience as well is that I actually I actually have Kaiser and before that I had group health. And sometimes mm-hmm. you can actually advocate for yourself by screaming, which I did a little bit back in the day, and actually mm-hmm. have them pay for uh, a private therapist that 
treats you normally. Right on. Um, but yeah, private pay might be the way to go, especially if you can afford it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, managed care, you know, HMO care typically involves the effort of trying to reduce costs. And one of the ways they do that is to have a model of, they don't even call it therapy. What they call it is behavioral health, mm-hmm. which I find to be one of the dumbest, like, okay, yeah, behavioral health is a thing, but it's not all the, you know, everyone who wants therapy is considered behavioral health. It's like, no, it's not my fucking behaviors. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's not the problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, they see it through that lens because it makes them more money. And, and that's the way, and there's lack of parity and there's stigma around mental health. And we would never do this to a cancer patient because mm-hmm. we have less stigma. There's stigma around cancer, but not as much as mental health. But anyway, yeah, it's all designed even through the language. And it's, and it's really bizarre. It's really something to behold as a therapist myself and YouTube, Bob, when you interface with this model of providing therapy, you're just like, what in the world? You check backs. Even the intake process is ridiculous. The first person you talk to is usually like a a high school graduate. Like it's not a clinician. It's mm-hmm. someone that you're just it's like a it's like a call center where you're calling in about like your Amazon uh help center or something mm-hmm. and and they're they're working off of a script and this is supposed to be your mental health intake. Mm-hmm. And then the I remember if if I remember right the second layer was still not a clinician. Mm-hmm. You got referred the first person was to see if they could screen you out essentially. Mm-hmm. The second person was a little bit more knowledgeable but still not a clinician and then the third person you talked to was a clinician but the model was one month of therapy and then and then these checkback situations. And the bot and none of the therapists wanted to do this because no therapist gets into the or very few therapists get into this field to do that sort of work. But they get hired and they get told what to do. And they're all it's all sort of commodified and kept track of. And if you see a client more than, you know, a month of sessions, you get you get written up or fired or something. And so there's this power structure that's, you know, uh, dictated by the capitalists that doesn't care. And, and, and there's not a public outcry because there's too much stigma and no one wants to step forward. And so they get away with it and, and it's, um, it's, it's criminal. And, uh, now on the other hand, a lot of reasons why we want to go to therapy, you could consider to be kind of like icing on the cake, like for a lot of therapy that I've been through in my life, not all of it, but a lot of it, I would consider to be not not necessarily medically necessary. You know, if I have skin cancer or something, then that's medically, there's nothing I can do. Like that's, that's what health insurance is for. But if I'm existentially questioning things or I'm wondering whether or not I should break up with someone or not, like, I don't know if that's medical necessity. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I just want to throw out there that that's a question mark. Do we want to collectively pay for that? Because that's what insurance is, is you're essentially spreading out the cost to all the all the consumers of that insurance. And I find that a lot of therapists don't talk about that because it's not self-serving. You know, we would we want all all uh, presenting problems to be justified insurance paid for therapy. But I but I find that that's I don't know, not not um, reflective of perhaps the way that the capitalists are looking at it. What do you, what do you think, Bob? I think that you're not saying that that's not important. You're saying 
Is that something that we want to use the collective pool of money for health insurance for? Right. It's sort of like... You're not saying it's not important. No, I'm saying it's very important. And 99% of my own therapy, 99% of the clients I work with do this. And I do find legitimate diagnoses that can't, you know, adjustment disorders, Mm -hmm. major depression, that will justify the insurance Mm -hmm. paying for it. So, Mm -hmm. you know, um, so there's that. But... I, and I do it legitimately. I don't, I don't, I'm not fraudulent in that, in Mm -hmm. that, in those claims, but I just have these, I just want to raise the question. Now Mm -hmm. in a perfect world, we'd have enough sense to say, well, as a society, do we want a bunch of unhappy people running around, uh, suffering emotionally And is that what we want? No, I think as a society, we want people to be happy. And we could look to different measures of like, well, unhappy people, you know, they they get more stressed out, they get sicker, they have a harder time parenting their kids. You know, you could look at these sort of outcomes from the whole thing. But but I think that lumping in all presenting problems into the same bucket, you know, someone comes in with PTSD, that's undoubtedly justified for insurance to pay rigorously for that treatment. That person deserves all the money that they need to recover from their trauma, for sure. But for me to talk about self-actualization with my therapist, I just don't consider that to be in the same category. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what that means exactly, but I just think that that's, that's part of the equation. Mm-hmm. Am I being inflammatory right now? No, no. I think it's probably an unusual thing for, um, uh, it's the first time I've ever heard that. So it's the first time I ever thought about it and I appreciate it. There's, you know, I think that's a reasonable question to ask. Yeah. 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 Now on the scale of things, if we, even if we said, look, for any reason, someone wants to go to therapy, let's pay for it. We're talking about, you know, one stealth bomber worth of money to pay for like an entire state's uh, therapy, you know, it's not an, it's not a huge expense. It, so uh, the amount of money that is allocated in our government towards things is wildly skewed in like some very ridiculous directions. So I'm not saying that it it is it pales in comparison to a lot of other ridiculous spending we do as a collective society, but I just think that it it should be discussed you know as, mm-hmm. as part of the and really i guess my point is is that some conditions really should be held up of like no 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 kaiser permanente you are you are negligent with people who have ptsd <laughs> if you're not providing uh sound treatment for it and there's lots of evidence that certain treatments are very sound yeah uh, anonymous patron she says how should i handle a large rupture in the therapeutic relationship with my counselor I've been seeing my therapist for a while for grief therapy. My husband also started seeing the same therapist for individual therapy. At my last session, we somehow started talking about an issue I had with my husband and I, that I had a disagreement on. The therapist became very defensive and upset. The way he talked was, the way he was talking, the way my therapist was talking to me made me feel shamed, judged, and belittled. The conversation became heated. I was so upset I cried about it the rest of the evening. I have felt subtle judgment and belittling from him before, but I just chalked it up to him being human as our sessions had otherwise been very helpful. 
This was a whole other level, though. I am now not sure if this rupture is so large I should end therapy with him or if I should try to work through it. I don't feel like I can trust him or feel safe to talk about things in sessions after this. What would you recommend? Bob, what do you think? Um, I think that all things being equal, it's impossible for your therapist to be the therapist you need. I think it's a him, right? Yeah. Uh, you need him to be while at the same time being the therapist your husband needs him to be because um, your various needs might um, run at cross purposes. So it's to me, it's too many hats and I wouldn't do it. I would refer out if, if the spouse of one of my clients wanted to see me, I would say, you know, I, I, I let's find you someone else. It's going to go better for you. And um, um, if you have a therapist who is, 100% available to you, which doesn't mean that a uh, good therapist takes sides, but um, it's hard to, um, if I'm, if my um, care is split, that can make it difficult. Now, some people live in, you know, really rural situations wherein there aren't any, there isn't another therapist to choose from. And I think that's just a complication and that would impact whether or not I wanted to try to repair the rupture and have a very frank discussion about whether or not the therapist is someone that can actually do, be the therapist I need to be while at the same time being the therapist my partner needs to be. I think that's a worthy question. But if you lived in a city where there were plenty of other therapists, I would suggest that, um, um, that, that, um, you, that the therapist refer one or the other of you to somebody else. Yeah, we're running out of time, so I'm just going to rattle through my uh, recommendations. What I recommend is, as Bob and I always say, talk about it with your therapist. Just yeah. tell them, look, there's a rupture. I don't like what happened. I don't like you treated me. I think you're biased. You know, just let them have it. You know, just give it, a, give them an opportunity to uh, be therapeutic, be a therapist. Hmm. Um, yeah, and this is why we tend to avoid these dual relationships. It's not inherently unethical, but this is the risk. That, But honestly, it's not that hard to avoid, and we don't know because the therapist isn't here to defend himself, but I have, have rarely had instances like this, and it's not hard to navigate this. You, know? uh, you just have to remain differentiated. You have to understand triangulation. You have to mm -hmm. understand countertransference. And, you know, uh, it sounds like, if we take your word for it, something went wrong there with the therapist and you know, it's, it's doable, but yeah, I would definitely talk about it, raise it with, with the therapist, you know, it could definitely be salvaged and what a wonderful opportunity for you and your therapist to talk about something. But yeah, in general therapists out there, when in doubt, you don't want to treat people who are connected in individual therapy uh, because of this reason. So uh, it, it just makes it easier. It's just easier to avoid this. All right, Bob, final word. Final word. <laughs> Mind your limits. I don't, I don't know. And everyone out there, please take care of yourself because you deserve it. Mm -hmm.